Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Game and Word podcast. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to the Game and Word podcast. I'm your host, Jay Rooney, as usual, and I've got an amazing guest for you this week, Dr. Pete Etchells. Dr. Etchells is a professor of psychology at Bath Spa University in the UK and the author of Lost in a Good Game, which is an excellent primer on the fascinating field of video game psychology. Today, we deep dive into the nature of psychological research into video games and why answers to questions like, are loot boxes addictive? Or do video games increase aggression? Are never as clear cut as we'd like them to be. We also talk about some recent examples of games serving as vehicles for enabling a better understanding of not just certain mental illnesses, but even basic challenges of the mind, like processing grief. Finally, we end with some solid, practical advice on how to tune out sensationalistic and misleading headlines on video game studies and figure out what all the new psychological research coming out is actually saying. It's quite an illuminating conversation, and I'm thrilled to share it with you all today. So go ahead, grab your cup of joe or your cup of tea, Put your earbuds on or turn on your speakers and hit that play button. I'll be back after we're done to wrap things up. Until then, enjoy Game and Words interview with Dr. Pete Etchells on video game psychology research. See you on the other side. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another special edition of the Game and Word podcast. Today, I have with me, dialing in live from the UK, Dr. Pete Etchells, author of Lost in a Good Game, which is one of the big books that informed a lot of my research on this last series I've been writing for this for the past couple of months. Pete. Do you want to introduce yourself? That was a wonderful introduction, so I don't think there's much more to say there. But yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Pierre Jules. I'm a professor of psychology and science communication at Bath Spa University in the UK. So I do research on lots of things, but all things digital technology, really. So I'm interested in the behavioral and mental well-being effects of video games and playing them, things like that. Uh, I'm also interested in screen time more generally. So how does digital technology affect us? Uh, in good and bad ways. So yeah, all sorts of stuff like that. Oh yeah. And I wrote a book, but you've already said that. <laughs> and uh, how do video games affect us and how do they not? It, do you know what? It's actually a really interesting question. So it, 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 in so far as the answer is they affect us in lots of different ways, but in not kind of massive ways. So if you're approaching that question in the sense of do video games impact on our mental health or do they make us more aggressive or do they make us smarter brain training games make us smarter things like that the answer to all of those sorts of questions is generally no they have a bit of an impact but not that much and certainly not in such a way as that's worth worrying or considering about games will make you a little bit annoyed or a little bit happy for a little bit of time when you're playing them or after you're playing them but in terms of long-term differences there's, there's not much going on there Brain training games don't work. They don't make you smarter. So that's no good either. But in terms of both over positive and negative effects, there's not much of a swing either way. I think if you approach that, so the other part of that was that they affect us in lots of different ways. So I think from a kind of cultural perspective, I think they have quite a powerful impact. So what games do allow you to do is to explore. I use this term in the, in the book and I hate it. It's a really rubbish term, but it, I'm going to say it anyway, I'll try and qualify it. Um, they, they allow us to explore what it means to be human, which is a risk. It's just a bit flowery, I think. But I think what I mean by that is that 
because video games are unique amongst entertainment media in the sense that they place you as the active agent in the thing that you're doing rather than a passive watcher they offer you the possibility of becoming fully immersed in this experience that you're having and taking on the role of the character that you're playing the avatar that you are and therefore feeling things as if you were them so video games allow you to explore things like grief or what it feels like to lose somebody what it feels to be betrayed by somebody it allows you to explore your moral compass as well there's some great games that have come out recently where they're choice games basically but in the process of making those choices you can be different versions of yourself we always like to think that in a certain situation this is how we would react but you only really find out what you're going to do in that situation when it actually happens to you video games give you a chance to look at a version what you might do in that situation give you a bit of an inkling of as to say where your moral compass is and things like that so we're not talking about big broad positive or negative effects on psychology here but these quite personal yet still powerful experiences that they can afford so what's the next book about if, if you're to talk not... about it yeah yeah no sure so it, it, it's the same sort of style as lost in a good game but it's about screen time more generally so it's about oh. digital technology and the kind of the impact that it has on us so things like the relationship between social media and mental health and screens generally and sleep mm -hmm. attention and things like that just with a general view that it's the same sort of thing as with lost in a good game there's a general perception that screens are bad and that they're causally bad if you pick a particular thing that you're worried about particularly when it comes to kids and adolescents mm -hmm. you can trace that directly back to to screens um and there's some research which supports that, but you start digging into it a little bit more and that research isn't very good. And there's lots of reasons why that research isn't very good. So it's all about why we've got into this situation and how do we get out of it? And is there any kind of, are there any things that we should actually be worried about? If so, yeah. what? And rather than just worry about them, what can we do to help ourselves basically? Yeah. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a self-help book because that sounds awful. It's not at all. It's more about trying to reframe people's thinking about digital technology so that we can have more mature conversations about it and not just get stuck in this either they're really good and we should worry about them or they're the worst thing ever because you know, we never get anywhere with conversations like that really yeah definitely what do you feel is the biggest misconception that people have regards to, to video games and their effect on mental health it's a good question i think my feeling is generally the biggest misconception about games is about how they're played so you, if you talk to people who don't play video games that much or don't really understand them, you try and get a sense of what they think they are. What they'll end up describing feels like a very solitary experience. It used to be, I don't think this is so true anymore, but it used to be the case that you talk about, you know, saying, you know, what's a gamer? And people would say, you know, it's a teenage boy, he's in his room on his own, playing a game, pasty white in front of him. Uh, your skin's going translucent because he's in front of this screen in the dark. I don't think many people think that video games are like that anymore, but I still think there's this sense that they're an isolating experience when actually they're the complete opposite of that. And they always have been really from the moment that video games were created, they have been social experiences and, mm -hmm. and multiplayer experiences. They've been things to do with other people. In terms of the misconceptions around video games and mental health, I guess, again, the broad strokes general one is, particularly from people who don't play them, is that they're bad, right? That, that if you play games, they're addicting and they're going to harm your mental health in some way. And when you try and press people about that, so this word harm gets used quite a lot when we talk about games or loot boxes or digital technology more generally you try and press people on what that means and, and and it covers all sorts of things really it's a very poorly defined concept i think yeah. uh, and people generally use it to mean it's no good for you it's unwholesome or something like that so when you actually start to press in terms of specifically define this thing that you're talking about and you look at the research that correlates with that sort of definition you inevitably find that it's not harmful in the way that people suggest it is. But even now, I'd say, if you look at this at a broad strokes level and you're talking about the effects on mental well-being, which is a very broad umbrella term for how well you're doing, there's this perception that maybe video games 
they're okay for a little bit, but if you play a lot of them, that's maybe not such a good thing. The data that we're starting to get now doesn't seem to point in that direction. There is not much of an association going on where there is one. It's positive, but it depends on a lot of different things. It depends on how you interact with games, why you're playing, why you're playing them in the first place, who you're playing them with, what your motivations are and things like that. So it becomes a very complex question to ask very quickly. And you get into conversations with people about this and what everybody in that conversation starts to realize very quickly is that it's, it's meaningless to ask how do games affect our mental health? It's like asking, how does food affect my waistline? Depends what you're eating, who you're eating it with, when you're eating, how much of it you're eating. Uh, it depends on your prior history, individual differences, whether you're allergic to foods or not, all these sorts of things. You start realizing that those are the interesting questions. Yeah. That general question is meaningless in a way. It's not, you're, A, you're never going to get an answer to it and B, is is it worth asking? Probably not, because even if you were to get an answer to it, I don't think it would tell us anything useful. In less than a good game, you go into quite some detail as to the myriad problems facing psychological research insofar as video games are concerned. Do you feel that's changed at all since, since you first published a book? Yeah, definitely. I think it is getting better. I think there are still risks to the research. So I think if you look at different sub areas of research, different things are going on. So you look at the whole violent video games and aggression research literature that has moved on since me writing the book and since the stuff that I talked about in the book in some ways, right? So we've developed some better ways of looking at that question. And what you inevitably find is that as a research area matures and you develop better, more robust methodologies, more appropriate analysis methods where you might have found big effects in the early days, they tend to get smaller and smaller. And that's what's happened with the violent video games and aggression question is that the best evidence that we've got now really suggests that this is not a thing that is worth worrying about. There might be a small association there, but it's, it's not doing any particular damage. On the other hand, you still got all the same players in that research field, right? So you are still getting research that, that does the same thing that it did 10, 15, 20 years ago and saying the same things. What I think is starting to happen there particularly is that people are just ignoring those old arguments now and just focusing on the good research, which is a good thing to see. Then you look at other areas. So I do research on loot boxes and the relationship with things like problem gambling and, and mental well-being and things like that. That's a relatively new area. So I think the first study in that area came out in 2018. If you look at the broad stretch of research in that area, it's pretty good. Pre-registered, a lot of the times people make their data openly available and their code and things like that. So there's all these really strong principles of open science that a lot of us have been talking about in psychology for a, a good few years now to try and improve the state of the discipline, be more honest about the things that you're doing and share things so that people can check if they need to check your stuff, but it's more about not reinventing the wheel constantly and collecting the same data and over and over again. It is all these principles of open science, which is good. My worry with that is that there are potentially new problems in that area of research that we're not thinking about that are somewhat akin to other problems that we've seen elsewhere in video games research that we're not really kind of getting a handle on. And I think it generally goes back to this idea of the interplay between the development of video games and moral panics in society. Yeah. So what happens is that video game comes out, something happens in the real world. People who don't understand video games, maybe attribute the thing, the horrible thing that's happened to video games. And that's what starts something like the whole violent video games that they cause yeah. aggression worry. Now what happens in, in the research world is that psychologists come along and say, okay, here's this thing that people are worrying about. We've not really thought about it up until now. It's not been a thing. It's not been on our radar or anything like that, but people really care about this, right? People, the general public are really worried about it. Parents are worried about it. Policymakers are interested in doing something about it. We need to know what's going on because this is all quite fast paced. You end up doing quite rapid research tends not to be necessarily very good but you'll find something that was the problem with violent games research. It was very reactive towards what was going on in society. The methods that we used to ask that question weren't particularly good, but they showed big effects. They showed big negative effects of playing violent video games early on. 
And then that was taken as, well, violent games do cause aggression. When actually over time, you realize that the thing that you're measuring is not the thing that you think you're measuring. And when you do start measuring things properly, you find that effect actually isn't there, if it is at all, or it's not very big and it's not worth worrying about. And the problem with loot box research is that it's the same sort of thing. You know, started doing research on loot boxes because they were a thing that people started worrying about. And what we're kind of missing there, I think, at the minute, so there's two things. One is that pretty much without exception, the research on loot boxes and problem gambling is correlational in nature. So it's really good, really robust work, but it's correlational. It tends to show... And my work shows the same thing, that people who spend more money on loot boxes also tend to score more highly on scales of problem gambling habits. That doesn't tell you is which one comes first. Mm. It doesn't tell you whether spending money on loot boxes causes problem gambling habits or vice versa. Some people argue that doesn't matter in a way, because if it's that loot boxes cause problem gambling habits, then you've got really problematic mechanism in games that's causing problems for people. If it's that people who are more likely to have problem gambling habits are more likely to spend money on loot boxes, then you're, you're targeting vulnerable individuals. So neither of those realities is good, but we don't know much about the causal mechanisms. And critically, what we don't know is whether there's a third variable that impacts on both. And then we don't know what's happening on the other side of it as well. So lots and lots of studies show this correlation with problem gambling. Very few, if any studies show that translating into psychological distress, say, or problems with mental well-being or things like that. And you look at the kind of good studies that are coming out at the minute, there's a potential problem here, obviously, with biases in participant samples. So, you know, who does your study might not be a random representative population of the entire population of people who play video games and buy loot boxes. But, you know, they, they're still big studies. I've got a, a study that's just about to come out where we surveyed 3,000 people that played video games and bought loot boxes and all this sort of stuff. What you tend to find in those studies is that pe- what people report is that they don't spend that much money on loot boxes per month. So I think even in like problem gambling categories, people are spending a month on average. So there's an argument there is to say, is that really a problem? Now, the difficulty with that is that obviously you see a lot of single case stories in the news where people say, my kid got hold of my credit card and they spent $3,000 on FIFA in two days and things like that. There are people who are spending vast amounts of money on loot box games in what is probably going to be quite a problematic way. So I don't think the research literature is capturing those people particularly well at the minute, but equally, I'm not sure that it's got a clear sense of what the worry is, what we want to do at the end of it. There's this association between a particular survey measure you use, which scores problem gambling behaviors and loophole spending. But you also get studies which show that there's no association between loophole spending and psychological distress. So people are spending money on these games and they may be not happy about that, but it's not causing them psychological harm or distress, really. So what do you do with that? And there's not an easy answer to that because a lot of this work has happened because people are worried about loot boxes with a view to regulating them, particularly worried about kids having access to these sorts of things. Do they effectively work as a sort of gateway mechanism for other forms of of gambling? We really don't know that yet. And I should say that part of the reason why we're struggling with this research-wise at the minute is that whenever you have a reactive research area that's trying to catch up with what's going on in society, it tends to be very theory light. So it tends to be like surveys and stuff. So do you spend money on this thing? How do you feel? Is there a correlation? That sort of thing. But in the absence of a theoretical framework, think about that question, you know, to, to, to pose the question in the first place, to think based on our understanding of human psychology, if we gave somebody this sort of mechanism, what might we predict? would they do? And how could we change that? You want predictive theories to be able to figure out what's going to happen for the next big thing that's going to come out, as well as figuring out why loot boxes are a problem if they are. Um, We're really struggling with that at the minute in that particular area. And I think we will be for for a while because it's very easy to do. And I I should hold my hands up here and say, yeah, the stuff that I've done recently on loot boxes is also pretty absent of theory because it's not clear what's the best theoretical framework to think about these questions. I have a friend called Andy Shabilsky who who does a lot of work in this area. I interviewed him for Lost in a Good Game 
I can't remember whether this quote got into it or not, but it, when he was talking about this sort of general video games research and digital tech research, he kind of used this analogy of kids playing football. So it's what we're doing at the minute as scientists is if you've got a bunch of people who don't play football very much and somebody punts the ball down the field and everybody runs to where the ball is about to bounce. And then somebody picks it up and throws it somewhere else or kicks it somewhere else. And then everybody runs to that point. Nobody's thinking about what's going to happen next. And that's what happens with good football teams, right? So they predict plays and strategy and things like that. And that's how you kind of win the game, right? And that's what we need to start doing, I think, in video games research generally, in loot box research specifically, is thinking about what's the big question that we care about? What is it that we're worried about here? And how do we best frame it? Because I think loot boxes will disappear in the next few years, right? They're a pretty toxic way of monetizing games because they've just got such a bad reputation. So they will go and, and something and else NFTs will, re will replace them. NFTs, don't get me started on those. NFTs are not going to replace anything in video games. That's just, it's just <laughs> never going to happen. They're a nightmare. But something will replace them. And that could be something a lot worse potentially, or it could be something that is not a problem. And that's what we want to aim for as psychologists is thinking about, okay, how do we put in or take out mechanisms within games so that we can maximize the benefits and minimize the potential harms? Yeah. And I'm curious too, I wonder if you've noticed in your research or just reviewing the body of research generally, that there's cultural components to the nature of these moral panics, like, for example, in the U.S., after each mass shooting, lawmakers are going to point the finger at video games instead of guns, which is very much, I think, an American phenomenon. Whereas loot boxes, I think it's more generally agreeable that probably shouldn't let kids basically gamble. So I wonder if there's a cultural effect at play, too, at least as far as certain things that people worry about with video games. Yeah, I think so. I think there's perception biases, right? If you look at the violent video game question, and does that cause aggression? By and large, if you look at the, the generally two camps of researchers, there's one that's very clearly they do cause aggression, and there's one that's very clearly that they don't. If you look at who those groups are, there are some very kind of clear boundaries between them, right? So the group of researchers Broadly speaking, obviously, it's not the same across the board, but who, who are consistently producing research that shows that violent video games cause aggression tend to have a pediatrics background or a clinical background. And my sense is that what's happening there is that they're getting patients in their clinics, parents with kids that they're worried about who are showing aggressive behaviors, and you go into the history and they're playing games and they're playing these specific types of what we call violent games or whatever. And it's hard not to see that might be a potential link there. And then on, on the other side of it, you've got, so the group who generally produce research that shows that there's no effects tend to be public health specialists, epidemiologists, criminologists, people who are looking at population level statistics. And again, there, you know, look at population level statistics, violent acts are going down over time. Video game sales are going through the roof. That's not the correlation that you'd expect if these were really strongly driving violent behavior. So there's that kind of base perception point. Yeah. I think when you talk about things like a mass shooting in America, when something like that happens, I think it's so, it defies understanding at such a basic human level that we don't get it. We can't understand possibly how this could have happened. And what you want to try and do is find explanations. You want to find explanations quickly. And there's got to be there's something so shocking and singular, there's got to be a singular cause. So I think that's why it's very easy to point the finger at, at video games. Again, especially if you don't play them or you don't understand them or don't know them. If you build up this perception in, of certain types of video games and media that, you know, they're gory and the point of the game is to go around shooting people and you get points for that, you get rewarded for it. Without any more of an understanding about what those games are or why people engage with it's very easy to connect those dots when actually you know, the reality of the situation is much more complicated. That's not what, that's not what video games are. Something that people don't really talk about is that violent video game as a term doesn't mean that much, right? What is a violent video game? You look at some of these cases over time and it will include things like Doom, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, those sorts of games. You look at those games and compare them. 
you know, very different games, right? There's not much really to compare Call of Duty with World of Warcraft. If you look at this purely in terms of visual perception, you just look at the, the visual display, right? What these games look like, and they could not be more different, right? Call of Duty versus World of Warcraft, one's a first-person shooter, one's a third-person perspective game. One, your visual attention is directed very much to the center of the screen where you're pointing your gun. Something like World of Warcraft. If you're looking in the center of the screen, you're not doing the game properly. Particularly if you're in like a raid scenario or something like that, you need to be looking at what you're standing in, where you need to go, where everybody else is. You need to look at the chat box to coordinate what's going on with the rest of the team. And, and also, um, technically speaking, Mario stopping on a Goomba could be considered violent. Yeah, sure. So there's a paper in the early 2000s where they tried to quantify violence in video games. And the most violent game that topped out on the list was Centipede. Hmm. I don't know if you remember Centipede from the 1980s. Mm -hmm. so there's a Centipede kind of scrolling its way down. The, it kind of looks a bit like Space Invaders, right? Yeah. Scrolling its way down the screen and you're at the bottom trying to shoot segments of it. And you're just looking at that in terms of shooting at something X times per second over the course of a 20-minute gameplay session. And it comes out as something like 93% violent. Mm -hmm. Centipede is not a violent video game. That is right. not... That's not going to cause any problems anywhere. Yeah. But I think it generally speaks to this problem that we've got with defining games and talking about them just generally. It's so yeah. hard. And I found this in, in my own, so I've done research on violent video games and aggression. And, and one of the things that we found really difficult when we were doing that research was trying to find a sensible way to categorize games. And the obvious approach to go for is to categorize them into genres. But even then, that doesn't sit right. So there's a study that I published in 2016 where we use data from an amazing longitudinal study. So it's a big study in the UK where they followed something like 15,000 mums-to-be and then followed their kids all the way through their life. So it started out in the early 90s, and it's still going now. So it's called the Children of the 90s study. You kind of get data from the kids and their parents every six months or a year or so, and you get saliva samples and this huge amount of data that so many amazing findings have come out of that in terms of kind of medical health and things like that. And anybody can use that data set. You just have to kind of apply for, for permission to use it. And we, uh, we, we looked at it and they had some measures of video game use. And we were like, yeah, this is incredibly prescient for a, a study like this to ask about what sort of games are you playing and things like that. So that data was collected in 1998. And we published our paper in 2016, even if it was the most perfect study in the world, would it tell you anything meaningful about modern day video gameplay? Because the kinds of violent games you might be talking about, the data set would be things like GoldenEye, which nowadays look really archaic, look cartoonish. But one of the key problems that we found was that, well, it was great that they had questions about video game use in this survey. They weren't particularly good questions. They'd not been particularly well constructed insofar as, so they didn't have first person shooter category. The closest that we got to that was shoot em up. Now, if you don't know much about video games and you've got a list of genres here and you're saying, what is golden eye? You probably going to take shoot em up. Shoot em ups are a very specific type of video game, right? They're things side scrolling games. It's very different to what you, what you might think of as a shooter game now. And that's, you can make educated guesses about what people might have been thinking, or you can be conservative about it and say, okay, we don't know what people were ticking this box for. It's probably the most violent category because it's got the word shoot in it. But how you kind of make those decisions is, is really difficult. Yep. Um, and even how you categorize games now, like my, how do you categorize Minecraft? Mm -hmm. Is it a sandbox building game is it a multiplayer social glorified social network game is it a violent game is it a violent first person game because it, i can't remember whether they actually did it in the end but there was talk about it being banned in turkey a few years ago because it was violent because you're going around hitting zombies with sticks so nobody really agrees on how to define the genres aren't a good way of defining them clearly. You could get super artsy about this, right? So what counts as a game? And everybody will have different definitions of that. So that's one of many reasons why it's really hard to do research in the area because you're just trying to deal with this amorphous, constantly changing thing. Nobody really knows how to define and nobody really knows how to 
talk about it. I found that's part of the reason why I wrote the book was to try and find a way of talking about video games in a way that people who play them can relate to and it doesn't feel patronizing, but people who don't play them and don't really have much experience of them can get a sense of what they're like, really. And it's one of the things I talk about in the book is that games are an entertainment medium. And it's weird that we have these conversations, right? We don't have these conversations about movies or music, not anymore. Like maybe had the moral panic debates about heavy metal and stuff in the 1980s, but we don't talk about is music driving people to commit horrendous acts of societal violence and things like that. But we still have these conversations around video games. And I think one of the things that sets games apart from other forms of entertainment media is that there's a really high barrier to entry. So if you've never watched a movie before and you want to get into movies because you think that might be a fun thing, you might enjoy them, you go to a cinema or you stick on the TV because there are about a million movie channels now, you literally just sit there and watch a movie. And if you don't like that movie, if it doesn't gel well with you, it's not that hard to watch a different movie and eventually you might find a genre of movies that you like. If you decide, having never played them before, that you want to get into video games, you get a PlayStation 5, if you can. Good luck. You open it up, there's loads of wires, you figure out how to plug it into your TV and things like that. Then you've got to figure out how to navigate around the menu system, stick the game in, then the game's got to download a load of updates for two hours. And then at that point, finally, you can start the game, you can start playing it. But before you can get into the game, you've got to figure out how to use the controller, what the controls are for that particular game. And then the first time you play it, you'll be terrible at it because you've never really done anything like this before. And there's a learning curve to learning what the ins and outs of the games are. And it takes a long time investment to get to a point in a game where you feel competent and you really get what's going on. And that can be incredibly Mm off-putting for people to the point that if you haven't played video games before and you watch somebody else playing video games, it looks like quite a jarring experience because you don't really get what's going on. I found this now, I'm starting to get old now and I'm nearing an age where anything new that comes out, look out with a certain amount of fear and, and disdain. We talk about eSport in the book as well. And I've tried to get into eSports, but I think it, I'm, because I'm getting a bit old and my brain's getting a bit slower, I just can't follow what's going on. I can't, I, it's just a blur to me what's going yeah. on. My wife is, is very much a non-gamer in every sense of the word, not just video games too, like board games, card games, everything. But they just don't engage her mind the way that they do mine. And over the years, I tried introducing her to more newbie friendly fare, like Animal Crossings and like games like that. And nothing's really stuck until we sat down to play What Remains of Edith Finch. Oh. And she actually really enjoyed it. And it's a short, only a two hour game. So it's the only game so far that she's actually finished with me. That's one of the nice things about a, an entertainment medium that's starting to mature. Yes. Right? Like you look at the top 10 games and your Call of Duty is an Animal Crossing and things like that. And there will always be a place for those sorts of games. But as people who started out in the video games industry and started playing video games in the 80s and 90s have kind of grown up and developed more discerning tastes, has become more of an appetite for different sorts of games that tell different stories. And I think that's a real power of video games, that you can, you can tell an infinite number of stories from an infinite number of perspectives that really draw people into a game. And it's just a matter of trying to figure out what those games are and what you like yeah. and what you don't like, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and I think we're increasingly seeing um, games that really, that the developers really feel comfortable exploring more personal stories and presenting these as things to people in the knowledge that there will be a receptive audience for it. One of my favorite examples of that is Hellblade, which is a game that came out a few years ago. It's your kind of standard looking first person perspective fighting game. The awesome thing about that game is that the main character has psychosis and it's part is very kind of integral part of this the story now there's two decisions that you can make if you make a game like that one is that you can do no research and just use all your kind of standard tropes about mental illness and people will buy the game but it'll be a, a rubbish horror story completely unrepresentative of what it's like to have psychosis but it will work as a game or you can do what hellblade did which was get a clinical psychiatrist involved in the development of the game somebody who's worked with people who suffer from psychosis and from schizophrenia do focus groups with people who have this to really understand what it's like to experience this sort of condition 
and then build that into the game. And that's what they did with Hellblade. One of the interesting things about Hellblade is that it's one of the most realistic experiences you could have today of trying to understand what it's like to have a psychotic episode. And one of the nice things I think about that story, it was funded by the Wellcome Trust, which is a biomedical charity based in the UK. They wanted this to be a sympathetic and accurate portrayal. A lot of people who suffer from psychosis and from schizophrenia who've played the game have got in touch with Ninja Theory, the developers, to say thank you for making this game because I, I, I can give it to my family and my friend and let them play it. And that's what it's like. That's my experience. And it's the closest that I've come to be able to give them an understanding of what these sorts of experiences are like over and above talking about them. Mm -hmm. You never really truly visualize what that yeah. might be like, but this is the closest thing. Yeah. And people get it a bit more now. Yeah. And I think that's great. It's a triple A rated top game in and of itself with high production values and things like that. It's got a good storyline, but there's this extra really cool scientific element to it that makes it better for people in the world. And it makes the world a little bit of a better place. And I don't think we would have necessarily seen that. 15, 20 years of the industry and, and video games in general just weren't in that place of maturity yet. Yeah. So hopefully we'll see more of it. Absolutely. Do any other titles come, come to mind as far as good representations of living with certain mental illnesses? Not that I can think of off the top of my head in terms of mental illnesses. I think in terms of human experiences, one of my favorite games over the past year has been a game called Spiritfarer, which I've been playing on the Switch. Spiritfarer is it's a weird game but it's a nice game, but it's a difficult game as well. It's a very complex game for a lot of different reasons. It's a 2D side-scrolling sort of game, and it's a little bit of lots of different things. So it's almost a bit like a, a, a sim management game, a business management game, but it's also a bit of an RPG as well. And the, and the basic storyline is that you play this character called Stella, who has taken over in the afterlife as the person who ferries souls on to the great beyond, and she's got this boat. And you go around trying to find lost spirits and each spirit's basically a level. So each spirit has a series of quests to complete before they can find beats and you can send them. So it's a story about debt, basically. And you pitch it like that and you'd say, why would you want to play a game about death? Yeah, that's a really depressing thing to, to play. And surely it's quite a horrible experience, but it's all very cartoonish, very lighthearted. So it's really nice sort of safe environment to think about, think about death in. And the reason that I mentioned that is that, so it turns out that all of these spirits, I don't think this is spoiling things too much, but all of these spirits are people that Stella knew in her real life. So they're kind of story arcs and mirroring things that happened up until their death in real life. And there's one particular story of a character who's really outgoing and really sociable and you do a bunch of stuff for him. Every character, they have the one big quest at the end and then the last thing that you do with them is that you put them in your little boat and you take them to this thing called the Everdoor. you have a really nice deep and meaningful conversation with them but you've got this one particular character who's this like big jovial larger than life character and he appears or at least you, you finish his story quite a bit through the game so by this point you've taken quite a few characters through and i should say that in and of itself is quite a heart-wrenching experience because that's it then they're not in the game anymore they've gone they're properly dead they're yeah. a constellation in the sky so you know you build up quite rapport with these characters right and you get to know them you get to feel as though you know them and you lose them and it's quite hard yeah. but there's this one character and you go through the motions of doing their particular quest and then their last big quest is everybody in so you got to find out what everybody's favorite food is and stuff and you do this big feast and it's lovely and then night draws in and you go to bed and you wake up in the morning expecting to see that quest in your quest log saying take this guy to the Ebidore and it doesn't appear and he's disappeared. Like he's not on the boat anymore. So when it happened, I spent a good five, 10 minutes wandering around the boat, trying to find him, talking to different characters. And they all say, oh, I don't know, it's gone. That, and that's it. That, that is the end of that character's story. There's nothing else. There's no Ebidor sequence. That is it. And it transpires through lo looking at what goes on later in the game that that this guy in real life was Stella's uncle. And this is what happened in real life. Just one day he disappeared and nobody ever saw him again. And it really struck me as one of the most accurate representations that I've ever seen of death and how it actually does happen. We like to think that when people close to us die, that we'll have the chance to say things that we want to say to them and that you can prepare yourself for what's going to happen and steal yourself against 
that eventuality. And sometimes, a lot of the time, that's not how death works. People go when you don't expect them to. People go in ways that you don't expect them to. And it just hits you out of nowhere. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's it. And you've got to live with the consequences of that. And you've got to deal with it and reflect on it. And I was, I I had to kind of put the game down after that and and stop for a bit and really think and reflect about this, right? Because it really hit me. Gone through this motion and started to treat it like a a sequential game in a way, saying, I've got this spirit, I've got to do X, Y, and Z, then take through the F door, do X, Y, Z, take through the F door, and then I'll get to the end. And then it just hits you with this one character that, no, that's not how things always work. And there's nothing you could do about it. They've gone. That's it. You can't do your nice little rituals that you did with all the other characters that you built up and make sure you give them one final hug and things like that. And that's a really good example to me of what the power of video games are, right? Because you, you don't really get that sort of experience with any other sort of medium where you are the person, you are the character that's been personally affected by this thing and because you've invested so much time and energy in the process getting to that point you've got skin in the game effectively and these things that happen with them can really have an impact on you and yet it's this super fun super bright cartoony game it's not it doesn't feel like a hardship to play but it's a way to explore grief and explore how we deal with that in this really nice safe environment to think about if you've never gone through that before this might be a little bit what it feels like. If you have gone through that before, you get to reflect on, you know, how you dealt with it before and how you might deal with it again and things like that. And I think that's one of the amazing things about video games that we miss in a lot of the the general conversations. So I guess to wrap up here, my audience is actually split fairly evenly between gamers and non-gamers. So if you could offer some parting words of wisdom as far as interpreting whatever hot new research comes out on video games or some moral panic or whatever. What would you advise to gamers and to non-gamers as far as interpreting that critically and responsibly? I mean, that's, that's such a good question. I think it's something that I'd say of any kind of science in the news, really. Science communication is a big part of what I do. And that's a really difficult question, right? So my, my kind of naive answer there is that if there's a new study that comes out in the media, the ideal scenario thing to do is to not necessarily pay too much attention about what's said in the story itself, but go and read the paper itself, or at the very least read the abstract to get a bit more of an idea of what it might be suggesting. Practically, that's a ridiculous thing to suggest because nobody's got time for that unless it's their job like it is mine. I think one of the big things is to just... And I think this is true, not just of video games, but of anything broadly that you see in the news, particularly about science, is to just be reflective of your own biases. So don't just automatically accept something because it fits with your worldview and don't just reject something because it runs counter to what you think already. Be critical in both of those. It's a lot harder to be critical when something comes along that you agree with, but those are the times to be super wary and super reticent. But just think critically about these things. Think about if you can access the abstract, you know, does what the news articles say match what's in there? If you don't want to do that's fine. I totally understand. But look at other news sources and see how other places are reporting this. Are they all reporting it the same way? Is it all off the same press release? Is the press release right? Things like that. Press releases are very often wrong. You think about the point of a press releases. So what my job is as a scientist is to do research and what that involves is doing a study, writing it up for publication in a journal, getting it published, and then using that to springboard the next study. Scientists are increasingly pressured to care about impact though. So when you've got a study that you think might be interesting to people, you'll write a press release for it, or you'll get your university press office to write a press release, or you'll get the journal to write a press release. So at that point, what you're doing is you're writing a very short blurb about what the study's about, why it's important, why people should care about it. Now, one of the big points of a press release is to make it interesting enough that a newspaper will pick it up, right? And there's a real risk there that therefore what you end up doing is over-exaggerating something or blowing things out of proportion. And therefore, what happens in news is a lot of the time you'll see basically a press release published. You have to be very careful just taking those at face value because they will have been written in such a way to make them attractive for newspapers to pick up. And attractive in that sense does not always necessarily equate with accuracy. 
But scientists are guilty of this as well. In the drive to make things seem more novel and exciting and sexy, in the discussion section of a scientific journal article, which is the last section where you talk about what all of this stuff might mean that you've just done, there is a tendency sometimes for people to go a bit crazy in the, in the last paragraph and go like, in conclusion, further research is needed, but this has the potential to inform new treatments for such and such a disease, when actually what they did had nothing to do with that. But the way science journalists read scientific articles is that they'll read that bit first. So if you go, this could be a cure for cancer, then you can't be surprised then when the newspaper article is headlined, scientists discover new cure for cancer, because yeah. you wrote it in your article, even though somebody talks to you, you go, actually, no, it's not. We just said that because it might possibly in the future. I think you always have to remember that scientists are human. And humans can be idiots and humans can be fallible and they can be biased and they can have pressures that run counter to scientific accuracy sometimes. Not deliberately, but that's just the way the world works. So don't just buy something because the newspaper article says scientists say this. Think about, does it make sense? Does the research question match what they did? Do their results match, make sense based on the methodologies that they used? talk to people. There's loads of scientists out there on places like Twitter and stuff who love talking about science and talking about accuracy in science. And they're good barometers. When some newspaper article comes out, there'll be somebody talking about it on Twitter saying, and you know, um, they can be a, a good, good potential barometer there. It's risky me saying that, I think, because obviously the, the counter to that is the easy way of interpreting what I said there is to go, well, I'm just not going to believe anything that I see written in the news about science. And I don't think that's the right approach either. And this is why it's so hard, right? Because whether or not a study that you see about video games in the news is worth reading about or paying attention to is dependent on so many hidden factors that you will potentially have access to. It's very difficult to get a gauge of whether that's worth paying attention to. There's a very simple barometer that's probably a really objective one more than anything that I've said so far. If you see stuff about video games published and big claims made about them in the news, first thing to do is ask, did they make their data available? Did they pre-register their study? So in other words, did they put paper up online somewhere that said before they did anything in the study, before they actually ran the experiment, they put a paper up saying, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to analyze the data. Because what you'd hope is that once they've collected the data, they actually follow the things that they said that we were going to do. And at the very least, if people do that, you can be a little, not completely convinced, but you can be a little bit more reassured that something weird hasn't gone on where they've got some data, they analyzed it. It didn't give them the result that they thought they wanted. So they analyzed it in a different way and then analyzed it in a different way. And eventually they found the result that they thought was going to happen. So they just report that. There's an entire chapter in the book about why that's a problem. But things like pre-registration and making your data open and available to people are a good potential, not a complete panacea, but they're a good inoculation against dodgy headlines. Do you want to, do you want to plug your pluggables? I haven't really got any current pluggables, except if you're interested in reading about video games, I've got a book and I've been talking about it. It's called Lost in a Good Game. It's about why we play games and what they might do for us as opposed to do to us. So if you're interested in psychology and how video games affect our mental well-being and behavior and things like that, then that's the book for you. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks again for coming on the show. No worries. Sorry. It took me so long to, to get there in the end. Oh, no worries. It was worth the wait. Great conversation. And thank you all for listening. And ladies, gentlemen, non-binary folks, anyone and everyone in between, Dr. Pete Etchels. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right. Now let's do it. Right, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you so much once again to our wonderful guest, Dr. Pete Etchels, for such a great conversation and such useful insights. As we both mentioned several times, his book is called Lost in a Good Game, and it's available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. 
I'd also like to thank all of you for listening today, and especially like to thank Game Awards paid subscribers for keeping this whole newsletter, podcasting, and publishing operation running, free, and available to all. I particularly want to shout out Game Awards founding members for making this episode possible. They are Le Takas from Luzern, Switzerland, member since April 14, 2022, Ella F. from San Diego, California, members since April 24, 2020, Alexi F. from Chicago, Illinois, members since May 13, 2022, and Elvira O. from Querétaro, Mexico, members since May 18, 2022. And now that this episode is aired, that wraps up Game & Word Volume 3, Game Over Matter. I do hope you've enjoyed reading, listening, and watching this volume's content as I did producing it. Next up is Game & Word Volume 4, Tempus Ludos, which will dive into how video games explore the concept of time and how we experience it. Now, in order to better prepare for Volume 4, Game & Word's free publication will be on a one-month hiatus starting now, so that I can take the time to properly research, outline, record, write, edit, and generally have enough time to deliver the quality analysis you've come to expect and love from Game & Word while still maintaining some degree of sanity on my end. However, if you're a paid subscriber of Game & Word, you will continue to receive weekly content throughout this period, including a really fun piece next week where I take a bunch of personality tests and see how much they correlate with my playstyle. To get in on this and other content while the regular newsletter is on break, upgrade to a paid subscription today. But regardless of whether you're a paid subscriber, a free subscriber, or no subscriber at all, thank you very much for listening today. Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary folks, anyone and everyone in between, this publication, this newsletter, this podcast would not be possible without you. So I am always eternally grateful for your readership, your listenership, and your support. Once again, I'm Jay Rooney, and this has been another episode of the Game & Word podcast. Talk to you again next time. In the meantime, Keep leveling up your curiosity, knowledge, and wonder stats with Game & Word, the curious gaming newsletter and podcast, and a 2022 Substack-featured publication. Stay curious, players.